on the drive here, I was thinking, if y'all have any kind of microphone set up when you and I are both here, it's going to have to be significantly lower <laughs> for me. Um, when we, I just want to say this before we get into the passage, when we moved here uh, of June of, let's see, I'm going to try to go in the pocket. Okay, hopefully that doesn't fall out. Okay, we'll zip it up. <clears throat> when we moved here, um, I came from St. Louis and went to Covenant Seminary where, where Jonathan also uh, went to seminary. And we moved here and I was longing for older brothers in the faith and pastoral uh, voices in my life. And in our presbytery, the regional body of, um, of churches, God has given me a lot of great older brother pastoral figures and voices, and Jonathan is one of them. We actually came in um, to the upstate together, and, um, and whether it's how to be a better runner or a better preacher or to be a better husband and father, I've gone through a lot um, since moving to the upstate, and Jonathan has been really faithful to me. And the thought of uh, and seeing new members and taking communion from you and just imagining your life with your flock and seeing it in person um, just fires me up. So, okay, you see the passages there in your handout. You can turn um, to Mark, Mark's Gospel in, in chapter 5 in your Bible if you want to go there. Okay, if you've seen Ted Lasso, then you know uh, in Ted Lasso, Ted is the head soccer coach for soccer team in the UK, and he's known for all kinds of things. He's known for his general cheerfulness, his endearing puns. He's known for all kinds of things. But essentially, when Ted walks into a room, joy abounds. That's what we know with Ted Lasso. We also find out that he is imperfect and he is human. And we see this palpably in one scene. He goes to a really loud karaoke bar after winning a soccer match, and it's loud, and there's booze everywhere, and he has a panic attack in the middle of the bar. And he has to leave, and he goes outside, and he gets composed, and the owner of um, the soccer franchise or whatever comes and consoles him. He calms down, but he has a panic attack. He's imperfect. He has an imperfect relationship with his dad. So this, like, walking in the room, exuding joy everywhere, he's deeply, has so much dignity, but he also has just real weaknesses. Here's what's worth, worse about that scene. A local news outlet publishes a story about Ted's panic attack. How can he coach a soccer team if he's having panic attacks in public after they win a game, right? And so what happens after this is embarrassment, and shame and living in the shadows of isolation, uh, isolation and loneliness. And it kind of haunts Ted for a few episodes. If you've seen it, you know this. He limps around in life after this kind of shameful moment goes public. It has been said um, uh, by so many people over the years that unconditional love is the most powerful force in the universe, and right behind it is shame. Unconditional love is the most powerful force in the universe, and right behind it is shame. And we are going to look at a passage where this woman in this story, as one pastor puts it, is the saddest woman in the Bible. It does not get any sadder and dire than this. And this is a woman who is living life, limping in the shadows of shame. And so we're going to see the power of shame. Then we're going to see Jesus with his love and the power of that love that comes looking for those of us in shame. And so what I want you to see is that um, for us to be honest about shame and what it is as we walk through this passage and see this woman, her experience, but also see 
as we've been singing about and praying about how Jesus relates to us in our shame and his answer to our shame, and that is he comes looking for us in the shadows. This is God's word. I'm going to read it. God is not silent. He's spoken to us, and in speaking to us, he hasn't given us a theology exam to ace. He hasn't spoken to us to give us a book of rules to follow. He's spoken to you and to me because he loves us. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And, he, and the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The word of the Lord. Thank Thanks be to God. Let me pray and we'll walk through this together. Lord, we are so glad to be here. We know your word is living and active and we've experienced that to be true because you are living and active and yet we walk in here in very different places. Our minds are busy. Our hearts are restless. You know us inside and out. You know all the ins and outs and nuances of our longings and our shame and our sin and our insecurities. And you know what is on our minds right now, what we're going to say before we even speak. So, Lord, you know exactly what we need is our good shepherd. And we ask that you would feed us and that you would be pleased with this time as we prepare to feast around the table in a few minutes. And we ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we're going to see two things. This is sort of the game plan. The power of shame and the power of love. The power of shame and the power of love. Of love. I want to say on the front end, um, pastors uh, often uh, do a wide range of studying. And I will just say on the front end, thank you to Tim Keller and Richie Sessions, who does RUF at Vanderbilt, for um, some of the things I'm doing in this sermon. Um, they've been very helpful to me. But the power of shame and the power of love. Let's do the first one. Power of shame. This is Jairus' daughter. And we see with her life, as one pastor says, shame grows in the shadows. Shame grows in the shadows. And I want to make a distinction really quick on the front end. That usually in shame and guilt conversations, we need to make a distinction between the two. Shame and guilt. Shame is an identity statement. Guilt is something like, I did a bad thing. But shame goes further than that to say, I am the bad thing that I did. Guilt says, 
I did a bad thing. Shame says, I am the bad thing that I did. And this woman is in the shadows of that second definition. I am the bad thing that I did. Because what we know, for 12 years, she has been living under this banner of unclean. That is her life. I am that thing. I am unclean. 12 years of isolation, 12 years of loneliness. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well who essentially was a prostitute and no one wanted to be around her because of the shame she was walking around with. That's why she was drawing water alone. This is, they're like, they're sisters of shame. And she is alone for 12 years. Banner is unclean. And we don't know why um, she would been, we don't know why she was bleeding. There could have been all, all scholars kind of speculate on this. It could have been because a lot of people have probably thought that she had like been sinning and in these sin patterns and God was punishing her with this physical ailment. We don't know. But what we do know is how she would have been treated. And if you touch an unclean person, you therefore find yourself unclean. That's why she's alone. Twelve years of this. Twelve years. Everywhere she went, she would have been known as a social and physical and spiritual outcast in every way. Every part of her life, that's the banner. That's the identity, unclean. If you've seen Les Mis or read Victor Hugo's story, you know of a character, Fontaine. And Fontaine is a woman who knows all about shame. There's a story or a part of the story where she resorts to prostitution to pay for shelter and for food for her her children. And the most popular song that she sings poetically describes the shadows of shame. And this is, this is what she says. I dreamed a dream is the title of the song. She said, I dreamed a dream that my life would be so different from this hell that I'm living, so different from what it seemed. But now life has killed that dream that I dreamed. And she literally is when she sings that. If you've seen the most recent adaptation of the story in the movie, she's like in an alley. She is alone. Of course she is. Shame grows in the shadows. Now, while we might not be dealing exactly with what this woman is carrying around, we don't live life exactly like the Samaritan woman and Fontaine and Les Mis, we carry around shame every single day. And so we just have to get honest about that. Because there are parts of our lives, it could be sin patterns that you yourself are keep running back to, it could be sins that have been committed against you, and so you might have physical and spiritual and sexual scars because of people sinning against you. But there are parts of your life, parts of your personality, and parts of your story that you have this sentence in your mind, especially spiritually speaking. Jesus will not come near with me or deal with me because of X, Y, and Z about my personality, about where I am spiritually, about what I've been through. Jesus wants nothing to do with me because of X, Y, or Z. Unworthy, gross, dirty, unlovable. We have experienced these words. You might have heard these words from like your parents. You might have heard those words from a principal or a football coach. Gross, unlovable, unclean. You know what's even more sad is that this woman we read has tried everything. It gets worse. In verse 25, we read that she went to several physicians and it only made the matter worse. She spent all of her money on the doctors. She's tried everything. How many of us can say, as we've tried to medicate 
and navigate the shameful parts of our lives where we've been able to say, I've tried it all. I've spent all my, I've been there. I've tried yoga. I've tried mindfulness. I've tried your Bible reading plans. I've tried your overseas mission trips. I went to this or that retreat and this or that retreat conference center. I went to the monastery for a silent retreat and it's not working. And I've ran out of money. I've ran out of options. This woman has no options. No more money, no more physicians. It's only making it worse. Failed attempts. So what I I want you to see and just feel is not just the identity statement of unclean, but that is also met with impossible. Impossible. Unclean and impossible. I've tried it all. She's defeated. So many doctors... And then she hears about another physician. Let's go to the power of love. The power of love. Richie Session says this. I love this phrase. Love comes looking. Love comes looking. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus stops everything for this girl. He didn't have to stop. We actually read that in verses 21 to 24 that Jesus is traveling and he's walking around and he gets... He's healing people. He's probably preaching. He's got, he's getting, there's a buzz about Jesus. This is what happens when he's traveling around and he's doing his messianic fulfillment business. Everyone's getting, a word is getting around and people are following it. And his GPS, according to his father's plan, is like zeroed in and locked in on cross and resurrection. He knows who he's going to talk to, where he's going, and this man approaches him. But his GPS is locked in, Jesus, and he stops for this man and he pivots. He pivots. He takes him seriously. And he hears about this woman from this desperate dad. My little girl is about to die. And rather than saying, do you know who you're talking to? Have you not heard all that I've, what I've done? Did you not see this healing two weeks ago? Don't. I know about her. She's unclean. He stops, he takes this seriously, and he pivots, and he goes right to her. I'll go with you, so let's go. Love goes into the shadows, not away from them. Love goes into the shadows, and not away from the shadows. Verse 27, I love this, it says that the girl heard reports about this man, Jesus. She heard reports. She heard almost like rumors, like whispers about what he was doing about who he's healed, the kind of people he's hanging out with. Maybe she heard about the Samaritan woman. If he can deal with her, maybe he can deal with me. She heard reports and she goes for it. She goes for it. Richie Sessions says, if you can think of this supermarket setting, she goes for him and she's like weaving in and out of traffic like a little kitten, just going up to him. Scared. If I could just touch him with my pinky, I've heard the reports. I've got to go for it. This is one of the most encouraging depictions of faith I've ever seen in the Bible. You want to know what faith is? Going for it when you're out of options. And Jesus is it. You've tried everything else. And you're weaving in and out, hoping no one would see you, but you're going for it. He stops. Who touched me? Because she says, if I can just barely touch him, I'll be made well. He asks. He touched my garment, just like that healed, just like that 12 years gone, 
healed. It says that she, I love the specificity of Mark the way he tells it. She felt it in her body. Can you imagine feeling it in your body? Instantaneous healing, 12 years. Shadows, living, gone, just like that. He's no self-help guru. She experiences that. There's no more to-do lists. There's no more prescriptions. Just come be with me. Verse 34, it says, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Again, what a, what a desperate trust faith is. How childlike it is, isn't it? If I can just get to him, if I can just touch his jacket with my finger... If you're here this morning, I, I hope that encourages you. I, I, I'm, I'm the guest. I don't know where you are spiritually. <laughs> but I have to imagine that there are folks in here that feel like spiritually, like New Year's resolutions aren't going great spiritually. Maybe you've already been to the retreat, and you've, you're going to therapy, which has been a really big deal for you. It's just like not, it's going slow. You're discouraged. And maybe faith in Jesus right now just feels more like limping and more like a speck. Well, according to this story, you're in good company. So I would just encourage you to say, if it, feel, if it feels weak for you right now, maybe that's the point. If it feels weak, maybe the way up is, in fact, the way down, as our pastor Justin Kendrick said this morning. It's so upside down, this life with Jesus, isn't it? She's so desperate. She has no options. If that is you, go for it with Jesus. Go for it. I love this. The fact that she knows that Jesus is her last shot. The saddest girl in the Bible. He doesn't just heal her. He gives her a new name. Did you notice this? Daughter. First words, daughter. Scholars have noted this, that this is the only time that Jesus uses this Greek word for daughter in the entire New Testament. In other words, we might just say that this usage of daughter is a name just for her. It is just for this woman. Twelve years of living in the shadows of helplessness and failed attempts of getting healed is met with a new name, not just a new transformative experience of getting healed physically. It's a new name. Daughter. That's her new name. That's who she is. We might say, as the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone touches Him with their pinky finger, He's a new creation, we might say. And she's feeling it in her body. And she's getting a new name spoken over her in this benediction kind of way. It's a gift. She didn't earn that status. She didn't earn the healing. Love goes to the shadows. He pivoted and went right for her. And he'll do that with you. One thing I want y'all to see too, if you're sort of visualizing this, it's hard not to, isn't it? The supermarket setting. When he turned around and asked who touched me, most everyone says that she would have heard that as a question of condemnation. Well, of course she would. Probably every tone that has been spoken with her and the vocabulary spoken about her and to her and against her for 12 years would have had a tone of condemnation and condescension and 
daughter. It is not a question of condemnation. It is a question of, I'm taking you seriously. I'm giving you a new name and I'm about to heal you. You need to buckle up by how we're going to be together in this moment. It is not a voice or a question of condemnation. Her life is back. Okay. Dr. Dr. Richard Seltzer wrote a book about his experience as a surgeon. And in this book, he describes the story of a young couple and he had to do surgery on this young lady's mouth and he was going to have to sever a nerve in her mouth that was going to result in her face kind of being crooked and disfigured for the rest of her life. He describes her to have sort of a crooked smile. And this is a young, uh, newly married couple that he's dealing with and describing. And I'm going to read what he says, okay? I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, almost clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed up with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that I saw it. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of her bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I asked myself, who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously and greedily? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say, it will, because we had to cut the nerve. She nods and she's silent. But the young man smiles, her husband. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze and I look away because one is not bold to encounter with God's. Unmindful to me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and I'm so close to them now that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that her, their kiss still works. We can just go home now. <clears throat> I, I hope that you see in that story how specific that husband is going to her in the shadows of the most embarrassing thing that she probably will go through the rest of her life. And it, the, the, the love that comes looking gets so specific of the corners of your shame. So here's what I want you to hear. Hear this, okay, if you can. He's not coming for your, your shame just generically. He's not coming for your sin in a big picture way. He's going to the specific, specific nuanced places of your story. There, right where you say no, like don't go there, off limits. He's going there to bend and to meet and to address and to heal and restore. You say off limits, he says I'm going there. And it's so scary. And it is the best thing that you can ever experience. How he bends and stoops and meets and heals. That's what love does. It doesn't run away from the shadows. And it doesn't just go generically to the shadows. But 
to the corners, every spot of the shadows, till you are completely healed. And where you will be fully and finally healed at that table in the marriage supper of the Lamb, where there will be no scars and no more sin and shame and sin and war and sadness and cancer, because that's where we're going. Power of love truly addresses the power of our shame. Two things before we leave by way of application. I honestly, I, I remember when I wrote this, I was like, I don't even know how on earth to apply this to our life in terms of like bullet pointy sort of like chew on this on your way out. I, I, don't, even, what, I don't even know what to say. I, I think we have to at least say two things. The first thing I just want to say is that ministry is a group of wounded healers. Now, not original to me. Henry Nowen has talked about that. Richie Sessions talked about that in his work on this passage. So this is just, I'm, I'm, it's all from them, okay? Wounded healers. That's ministry. It is not a group of spiritual, polished professionals. Jonathan has reminded you we are going to get honest when we come together because we are wounded. And so ministry is going into the shadows of shame and sin and sickness and death just like you have been delivered from. It's to say, older couples in this congregation, I remember what it was like to deal with money and fight about money because me and my wife dealt with that in our 30s and we're going to move in to the darkness and shame and embarrassment of how to talk about money in your house. So I've been wounded by that. Me and my husband, you know, my wife have been struggling through that. So I'm going to go into the shadows with you. Wounded healers, not professional experts. You don't have to go to seminary to do this. So I want you to feel like you have to think that the Samaritan woman who goes to be a missionary after she's healed from Jesus and gets a new name from Jesus, and you have to think that Jairus' daughter, when she gets a new name from Jesus to be daughter and felt in her body that she's healed, what would her life would have been like after this? It would have been a ministry of being a wounded healer. You had to think that this woman, playful speculation here, she would have like a radar to beeline on women who dealt with shame like she felt. Because she would have had all kinds of categories for empathy and healing. And what, this is what Jesus has done for me. Samaritan woman stuff. Come and see the man who told me everything that I did and everything that I'm, he knows everything about me. Wounded healers. So I actually want you to be, leave this place and be like, overseas mission trips, Bible reading plans, and like this way of living in the kingdom, is it really for me? It's for you, wounded healer. Like, let's do this. I want you to feel freed to do ministry in this church with Jonathan as you're trying to figure out how to steward and use your gifts in this church body, okay? Wounded healers. The second and lastly, and I've already said it, I'll just say it again, go for it with Jesus. I love this passage so much because of just this scared little faith that she has. And I don't know what areas of life where you have a banner of gross and unclean and unlovable over your life. And I don't know what, I don't know what those are. But I have them. And you have them. And if there is a speck of faith in you that thinks that Jesus is faithful there, then go for it. If you're spiritually searching and you like don't know where you are spiritually, and it's a big deal that you're at church tonight because someone invited you, but there's a speck of curiosity with Jesus, go for it. Go for it. Maybe, maybe you can take communion for the first time in a decade because you want to go for it with Jesus. Come on. Go for it. If your marriage is like on by, hanging on by a thread, 
but you have like some sort of speck of renewed energy to keep marriage vows because Jesus has kept his vows to you as your spouse, your husband, go for it with Jesus in your marriage. Go for it with Jesus. With trusting him with your finances, go for it with Jesus. And if it feels scary, it should. You're in good company. You could do a whole sermon series at this church, Jonathan could, on like scared little girls and boys like Peter and the Samaritan woman and Jairus' daughter and all the rest who encounter Jesus and their lives change. Wounded healers, that's ministry, and it consists of weak, scared faith trotting up to Jesus one day at a time for daily bread. That he's our faithful shepherd and he'll provide and he will make us new inside and out. That's it. Let me pray. Lord, we know that you're, <clears throat> you're good. We, many of us have grown up with catechisms and Sunday school classes. We have things memorized about your grace and your mercy and yet... We have these areas of life that just rattle us. And we need your grace to go right there into the shadows, to meet it head on, in the eyes, and address it. But Lord, we thank you for what this table is showing us, that there will be a, one, there will be a meal, another one, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where shame will fully and finally along with sin and death, be destroyed. Because Jesus, you were alive and you really walked up out of a tomb. So Lord, thank you for this time together and we ask that by your spirit you would renew us in the gospel at this table now in Christ's name. Amen.